This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. In the penultimate episode for the season, I chat with Matt Galetta, host of the Paradigm Podcast, head of operations at Harrison AI, and so much more. We delve into a re-evaluation of core beliefs, democratizing access to education, speculating on the path our world is on, the philosophical synergies between science and the startup world, and how Matt best supports people in the ecosystem. Matt is one of the brightest minds I've had the pleasure of meeting, so this episode only scratches the surface of what we could have dived into. I highly recommend checking out his Paradigm podcast to have your mind blown away. Please enjoy my discussion with Matt Galetta. Today on the show, I welcome Matt Galetta. Matt is the head of operations at Harrison AI, as well as the founder and host of a fantastic podcast called The Paradigm Podcast. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleased to be here. Excellent. And the buttery smooth voice goes to show <laughs> the effort that you put into the podcast itself. Matt, I would love to let you have the stage just for a second and help our audience understand your particular history and just why I'm so excited to have you on the show. To start off with, I'd like you to give us a quick rundown of your journey starting from the Her Collective all the way through to now, going through the different industries that you've worked in from fashion rentals through to the death industry itself and now into health tech and into all of the topics that you explore in the Paradigm podcast. Yeah, sure. I'm very, very happy to. I actually, when I look back at it myself, I do find it is a little bit of an odd journey, but it, it makes sense in context. So I think many people who are listening wouldn't know what the Her Collective is, but if you're in the UK, you probably would. So Her is the UK's largest fashion rental company and that was really where my journey into startups first started. At the time, I was doing a PhD in maths at Cambridge. Absolutely loved maths, absolutely loved science, still do to this day. But at the same time, I had a really close friend who had been pulling my ear about this startup idea, and that was this fashion rental company. And eventually, we decided, well, let me defer my PhD and let's give this a crack. And everything changed from that point. I realized that the startup space is just somewhere we want to be for the long term. Building something new, actually seeing the world change before your eyes, is just something that I want to be doing. And so her took a fairly long journey from two people who didn't know what they were doing in a cafe in Putney in London to now a very large company. And very early on, I realized this is this a space I want to be in, the, the startup space, but this is not an industry that I want to be in for a long time. And I need to upskill learn a bunch about what's happening in the world, and then get back into the startup space more generally. So from that point, after some time, I moved to an advisory position at Her. I still do to this day, and I spent a couple of years in management consulting at Bain & Company. Best decision for learning um, I, I've made. It's an incredible place. I learned so much. And as soon as I felt that I was ready to move back into startups and building things, that's what I did. I've always been really interested in 
those important problems that are for some reason neglected. Maybe they're not sexy, maybe they are taboo. And the company that I went to, Bear, was addressing one of those problems, which is the end-of-life industry, the funeral industry. It's a product that everyone buys. It's something that touches everyone, but the industry is horribly broken. Things are completely overpriced. There's price predation. It's very opaque. It is not being disrupted by technology yet. And Bear, an Australian company, is transforming that, that whole situation through completely digitized online experience, price transparency, all the good things. And I joined them as chief of staff very early on. I think they were seed stage at the time and stayed through a couple of funding rounds. I was fortunate enough to go and launch their UK office, which was wonderful. And they're still going very strong to this day. But over time, I realized, again, it was time to move to a new industry. I don't want to be in the death industry forever. And I'd been already working with several startups at this time in an advisory capacity. I ended up having a conversation with the folk at Harrison AI, who are building incredible AI technologies for medical diagnostics, and ended up joining them as a head of operations. And that's where I currently work now. Their mission is to use AI technologies to scale global healthcare capacity. Wonderful mission, wonderful values, really innovative technologies. And that's where I am currently. So that's the arc through academia to, to startup land. Right. And how did all of that tie into thinking about starting the Paradigm podcast? Because while adjacent to some of the topics that you're currently exploring with your work at Harrison AI, there's definitely a much stronger physics and philosophy bent towards the podcast mm. itself. So can you talk me through that? Yeah, for sure. For those who've not heard about Paradigm as well, and I think that will be many people at this stage because it is, it's fairly new. This is a podcast about ideas in philosophy, science, and technology that have the potential to really cause large-scale paradigm shifts in how we think about the world. The format is I sit down with really some of the most influential thinkers in all of those fields for long-form open discussions about their work. And it, it's for people like me who might not be involved in those fields, but are deeply, deeply curious. And maybe they've spent some time in academia and have just not been able to let go of the feeling of really understanding something at that deep level. I think how it ties into everything is, I mean, you have to kind of go all the way back to what set me down an academic path in the first place. I was not guaranteed to go down a path like that. I was born in a, in a very small mining town in South Africa in an environment where I had absolutely no access to the types of people I get to speak with on Paradigm. Um, you know, lots of small mining villages, people I associated with had never gone to university. And I spent the first half of my life living in an environment like that. And I only really learned about real science and philosophy in my mid-teens after moving to Australia. And this really transformed my life in a dramatic way. And I had this mental picture in my mind throughout my whole childhood that great academic institutions like Oxford and Cambridge and all the rest of them were completely inaccessible to somebody like me. It was honestly like a mythical land, like Narnia. I'd never even heard of anyone going to these places. And yet I found myself just through this complete roll of the die with this opportunity to go and, and pursue a path like that. And I've never forgotten that. In, in these places, I would, I would speak to the academics whose books that I'd read, who had really impacted my life. I would sit at a high table and listen to them speaking about their work and gain so much joy from that. 
And so even though I've moved on from the academic world itself, I've absolutely never forgotten the, the feeling that I got being exposed to those people and the commitment that I made at some point helping bring that to other people who might be in the same position as I was. No right to get exposed to these wonderful thinkers, uh, yet with you know technology, a podcast, it can now happen. You can scale that up. And so that's what led me to start Paradigm. And the philosophy is very similar to startups. It's creating something. It's being a net producer versus a net consumer of things in the world. And whether it's creating something like a podcast or it's helping build companies, I think these things very much align, even though the content or the topic matter might be different. Yeah, wonderful. There's a couple of questions that I want to pull out of that. Firstly is the right to access this kind of knowledge and this kind of learning and education. Moral question or a philosophical question? Do you think it's something that should definitely be provided as a right? Mm. Or on the flip side, it's something that people have to earn the right to access this knowledge and education? Yeah. I mean, I think it's both. My belief is that at the start of life, no one really chooses their allotment. No one has control over where they're born. I certainly didn't. I happened to be born in a very small mining community. And I also happened to be set down a path where I was later exposed to these things and given opportunities. I happened to be constituted in a way that motivated me to take them and to work really hard and to make the most of them. And while that was hard work, it was never something that was all up to me. And so I think on a fundamental level, if you look at a first principles perspective, every person needs to be treated on an equal footing. And things like education, I do see them as rights. I do see them as something that everyone should be able to access, especially now that education is so scalable through technologies. A podcast is perfectly scalable. And if the technologies like that can enable access to education for basically everyone, I think that should definitely be done as a right. Wonderful. I stand by that sentiment wholeheartedly. The other question that I wanted to pull on out of that was your experience of moving countries and cities multiple times. You started off in South Africa, you moved to Australia, you ended up in the UK, and then you came back. What were those experiences like? How do you think they shaped you as a person in terms of perhaps the culture shocks that you might have faced or the positive experiences that you had along the way? And what made you move away and what made you come back? Yeah, I mean, this is such a fundamental part of my life. And, and there are even more moves than you named there. So in addition to being born in South Africa, I've mentioned the word mining a couple of times. My, my dad was or is still in mining. And the classic thing that happens there is you move around from mining town to mining town on a six to 12 month rotation and live in expat communities and I've done that. I don't know how many cities I've lived in, 20 probably, and also spent some time living in Namibia in the middle of the desert. And I've lived in Perth and Melbourne and Sydney and Canberra and London and Oxford and Cambridge and lots of places. In some sense, it's wonderful because it exposes you to so many different perspectives and ways of seeing the world. It's very hard to move to five different cities where there are different ways of doing things and not then reflecting on how arbitrary a lot of our decisions are and our ways of living are. And it, you know, it forces you to really think through the way you're living from a slightly more first principles perspective. And I think that's great. There is a downside to it of you do start to learn to treat places as temporary and as not your home. And you start to, I mean, it's very natural to treat people in the same way as well. 
you end up with a very large number of acquaintances and have to work very hard to actually maintain friendships. And so that, that's definitely the downside. But overall, I think it's, it's absolutely a transformative way of living to move around, to move countries. And um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change it for, for anything. Awesome. There's uh, a couple of philosophical threads that I'm starting to notice based off of what you've told me and shared with us so far. There's this idea of transience, of life and death and rebirth. And I don't know if you've noticed this with the work that you do, but if we think about, firstly, startups and creating something new and building and growing that, going into particular industries that A, deal with death, B, at least with the fashion industry, fashion rentals, normally that's a one-way ticket from cradle to grave. But you've (laughs) found a model that works where it's more circular and now into health and medical as well. I'm wondering if you've noticed this trend, if this is something that is intentional or if it's something that is just a byproduct of all of the other choices that you've made. That's a, a wonderful question and observation. And I don't think I've ever explicitly noticed that trend, but it's totally right. It is something that has been a very core part of my life and philosophy, this general theme of transience and impermanence and yeah, and indeed death, both through having been exposed to death at a fairly young age in a dramatic way. I was in a very serious car accident when I was younger. Several people died and that was a pivot point in my life and it it definitely impacted me philosophically. And also the experience of the culture that I was brought up in was a very religious culture at the time. And as a child, I had beliefs then that I don't now. And, and again, a transition period of having to revise my own philosophy of the world and how I think about things. And both of those, I think, were very fundamental transient experiences or appearance of, of impermanent. You know, your whole worldview changes. And I, so I, think, you're, I think you're right. You know, that, that has certainly been an interest point for me. It will also reflect in some of the upcoming Paradigm episodes. I'm speaking to a couple very interesting people who are dealing with associated topics. The nature of time is a key one. The nature of consciousness and what happens to consciousness at the end of one's life is a key one. And so you're spot on there. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it crept up on me, but it's definitely true. Yeah, and I think uh, it's a good place to plug your podcast as well for anybody who has not yet had a chance to listen to the <laughs> Paradigm podcast. Firstly, every episode I listen to, I've got to take breaks because my brain explodes just from the, the, <laughs> the mind-bogglingly wonderful conversations that you have with your guests. And on top of that, the fantastic array of guests that you managed to secure as well. So shout out to the podcast and everybody who loves nerding out about anything and everything philosophical and scientific, please go check out Matt's podcast. Okay, just on that, I had another question, actually, which was around that philosophy and and that association with transience life and death and birth and rebirth and its association with the startup ecosystem. There's an element of, I guess, creative destruction that happens in the process of finding the next big thing or helping to develop the next big thing. And I'm wondering if that's what actually attracted you to it in the first place. It's a, it's a good question. It's, it's certainly part of it. It is certainly part of it. <laughs> the other side of it also to like continue this <laughs> psychoanalyzing myself, 
You know, moving around so much, I mentioned you become very good at very quickly settling in, setting up a new life, doing what you need to do, and then moving on. And part of it is also the fact that it changes so much, that it's such a dynamic place to be, whether it's at the early stages of a startup that you're building or working with other people who are building their startups. Things are always different. Things are always moving. Things are always changing. And so you, it continues this theme of not settling down, not getting stuck, not stagnating. And I, I, think, I think that is a, probably even the bigger component of it. It's the fact that there is momentum and movement and growth and no chance of stagnation. You know, you stagnate, you die. It's a good observation. And I think, I think that's right. Yeah, awesome. And hopefully this other question that I had isn't too much of a curveball. But I was just thinking about how you were reflecting on your childhood and you said that you had beliefs back then which you no longer hold now. And I'm thinking of relating this to the process or the experience of being a founder and potentially of being an investor as well. What are your thoughts on the nature of belief versus evidence? So you could have a strongly held belief in something without the evidence to back it up. And you could have all of the evidence in the world to show that something is good or bad and refuse to believe it. And I think in the experience of being a founder, you might have all the evidence stack up against you, but you have to believe that the thing that you're doing is going to work out. Or in the case of the investor, perhaps you believe really strongly in someone and similarly, all the evidence is counting against them, but you're backing them 100%. So I'm wondering, for someone such as yourself with quite a scientific mind, but also a very religious background, how do you navigate those tensions? Yeah, well, I actually would challenge the premise a little bit. I, I can hear what you're pointing to, but I would challenge the premise that as a founder or as an investor, you have to maintain a very strong belief in the face of very strong contrary evidence. There certainly comes a point in both cases if the evidence is genuinely strong enough. I mean, for tangible examples, I've seen many founders spend too long, quite frankly, on ideas before, before moving on because they are chasing something that's more tied to their identity, for example, versus genuinely attractive business outcomes and you know ignoring signals. And likewise for investors, this is much more of an operator than an investor, but it's very common for investors to make investment decisions based on things unrelated to financial returns, for example, or even on things that are not clear even to themselves. And I would actually challenge that that, that is the right thing to do. Now, there's certainly this possibility of things like you know self-fulfilling prophecies where you commit to something and because you commit extra hard, you actually eventually make it succeed. But I wouldn't necessarily, that's, that's uh, ignoring evidence. My foundational theory of knowledge, it, it always comes back down to justified beliefs. And I think that applies within it, whether it's in science or philosophy or in startups and investing. I actually don't think there is a tension there. I think there is potentially an unclarity of motivations and an unclarity of thought. But at the end of the day, decisions should be backed by evidence or theory. Fantastic. And your phrase, the foundational theory of knowledge, is a great segue <laughs> yeah. for us to talk about your podcast a little bit more. So we've talked about a whole bunch of other stuff unrelated to the podcast, 
although we have touched on it. And then there is the podcast, which, as I've already given it a bit of a plug, is fantastic. So if you were to sum it up, what is the Paradigm Podcast and who is it for? Yeah, so the surface level answer is just that it's a podcast about big ideas in philosophy, science, and technology. But that is very, very much the surface area. The thing I'm really solving for is what I mentioned earlier. A concrete example, I found myself once at Oxford sitting at a high table surrounded by several very famous academics. One of them, one of them was the founder of the internet, um, Tim Berners-Lee, and, and there were several others. And they were talking about their work. And I had, so took a back seat and just listening. And the thought occurred to me, I have no right. I have no right to be at this table and to be enjoying this conversation. And th- those experiences were very, very transformative for me. And I'd always had a very, very strong feeling that I, I wanted to scale that across to more people. And the beauty of technology is it allows you to do that. And the beauty of the internet and search algorithms is that you don't even need to overthink who the person is. If I had to try and guess that kid who was born in mining town in South Africa was the audience for the Paradigm podcast, I would have been completely wrong. Instead, taking those conversations and putting them out there as you know the best possible production, best possible piece of art, I guess, it finds its audience. And that is what's happening. So it's it's growing faster than I would have expected. I'm getting very, very good feedback. People all around the world are enjoying it and messaging me about it. And so it is finding its audience. I haven't profiled that audience and I don't know who exactly it is. But I, I like to think of myself sitting at that table at Oxford, just in awe that I could ever have exposure to these people and just thinking, well, now everyone gets to do that. Anyone who listens to the podcast could be another child in some small town in Africa gets to do the same. And, and so that's who it's for. <laughs> I can only imagine the experience of sitting up on high table and listening to all of these fantastic conversations. But I have the privilege of listening to you conduct those conversations now. So um, <laughs> it, let, let's look at the, the topics that you actually cover on the Paradigm podcast. So a lot of them deal with the nature of reality and speculative futures to a certain degree. What is it about the philosophy and epistemology of science that's so intriguing for you? It's actually such a great question. And it's also one that that comes from personal experience. I mentioned earlier that I was born into a very conservative environment, a very religious environment. And for many, many years, that was my absolute truth. I think I once wrote an article where I said something like, a child's mind is infinitely malleable if you start early enough. And that's not literally true, but it's something like that. I'm naturally a very curious person and a very skeptical person, yet I believed these things about the nature of reality and the nature of the world, which I now think of are very, very misguided. And it was really the discovery of science in my mid-teens that led to, to, this, to the way I see the world now. And it was a complete reorganization of my worldview. So epistemology... And the nature of truth is at the very center of that. I went through this process of systematically revising every one of my core beliefs, thinking through, well, you know, if my entire world philosophy doesn't hold up in the face of this scientific evidence, what else do I misbelieve? And how do I know the science is true? And the nature of truth has been absolutely core to me ever since then. And so in Paradigm, I often talk to working scientists doing hardcore science, but 
we'd ask them very philosophical questions about the meaning of their work and the purpose of it and how we know it's true, the nature of the very paradigm in which they're working in. And it really all comes back down to that initial experience of having my own worldview completely revised and just seeing how profoundly mistaken we can be when operating within the wrong paradigm. Okay, just extending that train of thought in that case, if we were to look at the sphere that you operate in now, startup ecosystem, the technology space specifically, and artificial intelligence even more specifically. Interesting. Do do you mean within the context of Harrison AI and the work we're doing there? Yes, and also how that fits into all the other things that you're seeing happening in the world. We've had a few guests appear on the show to discuss the concept of AI. And one of them is an upcoming guest on your show. And each guest has had their own views on how artificial intelligence will impact the way that we live. And I'm curious what yours are. And rightly or wrongly, wherever it is headed, where do you think it is headed? Got it. Okay. That makes sense. On the topic of artificial intelligence, I think that it will have a profound impact on the way we live in every sphere of life. I think that all technology progress basically fits on an exponential curve of rate of progress. And so at every point in progress, there there is this early stage where you look at it from afar and you feel like progress is very slow. And the, the classic thing is that people keep saying things are 10 years away, things are 10 years away, when really they're 50 years away. But then there comes a point where things change over and people are saying things are 10 years away and they're six months away or one year away. And my personal belief is that we're very close to somewhere in that region now with artificial intelligence and things will move much, much faster than most people expect. It won't happen overnight. You know, things are still, things are still clunky, things are still in development, but it will happen very, very quickly. And I think the effects will be absolutely profound in every sphere of life. Within healthcare, which is where Harrison AI is focused, we're at the very, very early days of artificial intelligence now. And already the technology that we produce has a drastic improvement on the ability for radiologists to detect anomalies, for pathologists to detect anomalies. And already it's completely augmented the ability of those clinicians to do their work. And this is just the beginning. So if I had to imagine, if I were to really play this for 50 years, the answer there is that the medical industry looks completely different. And, and I do believe that will happen, and I do believe that will happen in other industries. I also think by the nature of AI, it's very hard to predict the way in which these things will happen, because unlike a sort of a point-and-shoot technology, these things are enabling augmented intelligence, and intelligence is inherently unpredictable. Intelligence is a thing that solves problems, and by its very nature, you can't predict what intelligence would do, because if you could, you would have solved those problems already. And so I think it's inherently unpredictable, but no doubt profound. I do think that it has the potential to be exceptionally good, and there's a very, very bright future for the world ahead. However, I do think that the risks are absolutely real, and I, 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 I definitely don't look down on people who are concerned about the impact of artificial intelligence on the world and taking safety measures very, very seriously. I, I think we absolutely should be doing that. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about how such technology could enable some kind of plutocratic society in the long run and trying to avoid that if we can. 
And just as a general observation of where we are presently, there's long been talk of how artificial intelligence will replace all the menial tasks that we do, and we will be free to enable ourselves to create and live our lives in comfort and pleasure. But it strikes me as slightly concerning that we still have jobs at McDonald's while AI is doing the generative art for us. And so I I do share those concerns about where we might be headed, but I am not an expert. I'll lean on someone like yourself to help paint the brighter future. Please talk down my concerns if you're able to. (laughs) Well, I definitely wouldn't consider myself an expert in this field. And I think increasingly almost nobody is with the rate that it's moving. People are expert in very, very narrow domains in this space. Um, But no, I I share your concern. You asked me to paint a bright future, but I am actually going to go a little bit negative for a second. One thing that really shocks me with the progression of technology is that on an overall basis, productivity across the board at all the things we love to do, that we need to do, has drastically increased. Technology has enabled us to do so much more than we ever could. And yet, by its nature, it has also introduced a lot of asymmetries in the upside. And for that reason, many pockets of the world are not doing better, and many people are not doing better. And AI has the potential to do that in a more dramatic way, because it is scalable across a greater number of, of jobs and tasks. And so there is a potential that the asymmetry between those who have and those who haven't becomes a lot worse. However, I do think that the world is much more cognizant of this than it has ever been historically. And my hope, and it's, it's not much more than a hope at this point, is that we will rally around this problem enough in order to prevent it from becoming quite, as you say, disastrous, where very few people benefit and many people don't. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a very near-term risk. But I do have a fundamental optimism in humanity and our intentions, and I think this is a problem we can solve. So maybe I'll just leave you with with hope in that case. Well, we go back to uh, the nature of belief versus evidence, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> but I think uh, I think hope is a great place to launch off into the next bunch of questions about venture building and advisory and getting back to the startup ecosystem. So for any early stage founders out there who are new to the ecosystem, don't really know the ins and outs of who does what, how do a founder and an early stage company best benefit from working with someone like yourself? Well, the founders that I work with come in two different categories, I would say. So for example, just take the Techstars program as an example. You go through the classic founder mentor dating or advisor dating and talk about the business. There are founders who come with very specific problems and they would have looked at your background and they will know exactly what they want. And that's great. And they're very often right. Sometimes they've got blind spots, but they're very often right. They will say, you've worked at this place. I need this thing. Can you help me? Or you know these people. I would love to talk to you about them. Can you help me? And th- that's great. That's very efficient. And when founders have time to, to do that, they get a lot of benefit. As a very practical example, you work with actually two death tech companies, a very early stage, and they both know about my experience at Bear. They know that I launched Bear UK. I did a bunch of research and analysis work as part of that. And so they came with very specific things. 
on the other hand, you get the category of founders, and it's often younger founders, people who have who've not done this before or worked in startups before, who are less clear on what they want and their blind spots are bigger and they don't know what they want. And in that case, the benefit is often actually just from speaking to someone who's been in companies of different shapes and sizes, different stages, and being able to guide them towards the right questions. A good example here is also, as I think it was a part of Techstars, might have been as part of Startmate, a company that's doing like rental infrastructure. And obviously with my experience at her, having been involved in a rental company, I've made a lot of mistakes that I wouldn't make again. And I can see that these founders don't know that they're mistakes and they don't know to ask that question. And so in that case, just being able to offer some experience and learnings about the things that I did wrong and the things that I learned along the way, so that those mistakes don't need to be made again, that's often the most value that can be added to those ones. But as a point of advice to founders generically, to get access to any of those types of advice or guidance, it's very, very worthwhile networking as much as possible with people who are experienced that have been there before and finding the places where they cluster. And in Australia, there is a great, very supportive startup community that does this. Startmate is a great one. If you could get involved, you should. Techstars is kind of new here, but also great. And in general, the startup community is very supportive. And these mentors are there and looking to share their knowledge and to help. So any early stage founder who hasn't done it yet should absolutely be trying to fill the hopper with these people. Fantastic. I would also echo that advice. I feel like getting involved with all of these communities has definitely benefited myself. And I highly recommend other founders to do the same. Okay, you've mentioned a few companies that you are currently working with, both in an advisory capacity. How do you weigh up who you actually decide to work with? I mean, there's probably going to be a combination of your direct translatable skills and experience versus your personal interests, also perhaps with an alignment with your personal ethics or views of the world or views of the future. Yeah, what's your decision-making process around that? It's a, it's a great question. It's actually only fairly recently that I've had to start being more considered about this because up until, I don't know, 12 months ago, six months ago or so, I had enough capacity to go around a lot more than I do now. And it's only during those past six to 12 months that it's become much more constrained and I have had to be more considered and more deliberate. The thing I actually look for is not so much about, you know, do I enjoy it and all that. It is much more driven by where I feel like I can add the most value. Because when I reflect of why I'm even here in the first place and why I love being a part of the startup community so much, it is because I genuinely think that that this this space of creators is a huge force for good in the world. I think startups and new businesses, that's really where ideas have an impact and at scale. And being a part of that, I think, is generally a very good thing. There are very few unethical businesses. They do exist, but generally the startup community is, I feel, an ethical one and doing a lot of good for the world. And so I actually look for the place where I feel I can add the most value. If I'm feeling like I could continue riding this advisory wave and not being adding much value, that doesn't really sit well with me. I, I prefer to look at the combination of founder needs and my skill set and think, is this genuinely going to be the maximum value that I can add to this ecosystem? And if it is, I go with it. 
in the case of the death tech companies, it's obvious. I have a lot of knowledge from what I've done before. It's very easy for me to share that knowledge. And so I do so. There've definitely been other contexts in which I could help, but more leverage could be given elsewhere. And so that that's really the sort of the core of the decision process that I follow. Fantastic. And if we just pull on the thread of the optimism that you have for the space and how you believe it's a force for good in the world. If we take into account all of the things that you do currently, be it the work that you do at Harrison AI or on the side advising startups or even through the podcast itself, if everything goes right for you, what do you think the world will look like? Well, I think my life will not change very much. My life will keep looking the way it does because currently these things are what I want to be doing and they are going right for me. And so a lot would have to change for me to stop investing in the startup community and spending time here for me to not be doing the podcast and the other things, the the mentoring. So in some sense, things are already going right. I think more broadly, if we're talking again about things in the world with artificial intelligence and the space that Harrison AI operates in. And I think this could then be like a very, very long and fruitful journey. This company has the most incredible mission. The mission is to use AI technology to scale global healthcare capacity. And that is a huge problem. It's a problem much bigger than me and much bigger than anyone in the company. And it's a problem that I don't think will go away in the short term. And so what my hope is, if everything goes right, is that this continues to be a very successful company. It continues to be able to deliver on that mission in a much, much bigger way. And if that's true, then I think my role in making that happen is something that I'll be very proud of. And um, yeah, I don't see it changing in the near term, at least. Wonderful. Matt, I think that is a fantastic place to wrap up the conversation. I can't thank you enough for stopping by this evening. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media contact info, another shout out to the podcast, perhaps, and any upcoming activities that you might have planned for anybody who's interested in getting in touch with you. Cool. No, thank you so much for having me, Sean. Um, maybe before I do that stuff, let me just say that I'm a huge fan of your podcast and I would love to give promise a plug even to your own, uh, to your own audience. It's really great. You have a very, very great way of, of bringing the best out of people. And you were also very, very kind and helpful for me when I was just first thinking about Paradigm for everything from putting me in touch with people, advice from someone who's done it before. So let me just give a plug to your own audience. You know, if, you've, if, you, if you're stumbling upon this for some reason, keep stumbling upon it. <laughs> um, but for, for anyone who does want to, uh, to find me, find my stuff, I mean, I'm not big on socials yet. Maybe I will have to be. LinkedIn is usually the best place to find me. That's where startup people find me. And then if you want to find Paradigm, I'm pretty sure if you search Paradigm in Spotify or YouTube, it'll be the first that comes up. Certainly in Spotify it is. So go there, but yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want startup stuff. Wonderful. I will stick the links to both the YouTube channel and the Spotify podcast in the show notes. Matt, thank you once again for stopping by. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.